You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Hey folks, we are releasing this episode on November 11th, Veterans Day in the U.S. and Remembrance Day in Canada. So, the Ducks Unlimited podcast would like to take just a moment to say thank you to all of our men and women in the armed forces, both in the U.S. and in Canada, for all all of your service, past and current. And thank you for the great job you do in keeping us safe, protecting our freedoms. So, a hearty thank you to you on this Veterans Day and Remembrance Day, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, I'm excited to welcome in a guest that's going to fill an important data gap that we've experienced this year, another, another kind of artifact of the pandemic preventing us from collecting some of the data that we normally do. And it's a piece of data that hunters uh, across North America always look forward to. And that is Arctic goose production. Now, how many young are produced in a given year? Our researchers were not able to access their study sites this fall up in the Arctic. And, and as a result, um, they were not able to collect some of the important data on the number of goslings uh, relative to adults. That's a measure of production. That's That's a it's a value that we always look forward to to kind of get a feel for what we should expect in the flocks this this fall and winter that will be coming over our decoys. But we do have some information now. It's early November and our partners up in Canada have been collecting some data across the Canadian prairies, going out and counting birds in flocks of, of snow geese and, and white-fronted geese that they're, that they're seeing. So we are happy to bring that information to you on this episode. And to help us with that, we're going to welcome in a repeat guest on this on the podcast, Dr. Ray Alisoskis, research scientist with Environment and Climate Change Canada out of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And I will remind folks that if you missed them during the first season, go back, you can go back and listen to Ray talk in more detail about the research that he actually conducts up there at Carrick Lake, the nesting colony. So uh, that was a season one, season one, episodes 36 and 37, I believe they were. So uh, with that, Ray, welcome back to the podcast and thanks for joining us here. Hey, great to talk to you again. So Ray, we're eventually going to have a conversation here about uh, some data that's been collected there on the on the staging grounds of the of Canadian prairies to give us an idea of, of what actually might have happened with regard to the Arctic goose production this year. But we're here in early November now, and we've had some previous reports from Canada from uh, Pat Kehoe and Scott Stevens, and they were reporting some really cold weather and a mass exodus of birds. But actually, on the day that you and I are talking here, there's been a bit of a warm up throughout the central U.S. and up into the prairies of Canada. And so I wanted to get an update from you on what you're seeing with regard to the weather here over the last couple of days and what your near-term forecast may be. And just if there's any residual birds kind of hanging around uh, the Saskatchewan there in your neck of the woods. Sure, Mike. Yeah, I, uh, you're right. I mean, uh, we didn't, or I noticed a large exodus uh, back in, in uh, October, birds flying way high, uh, large numbers, you know, uh, clearly not on a feeding flight. And there was a, 
good north wind and the temperature dropped below zero, hour zero, year 32 Fahrenheit. And um, yeah, so that was at the end of November, or I'm sorry, October. Uh, and But then it, it had frozen up and even more birds left, uh, as uh, you alluded to from your other guest, Pat and Scott. Uh, so I concur with that. Uh, however, it has reworn back up up to plus 10 Celsius uh, in the last, say, week or so around Saskatchewan or Saskatoon anyway. Uh, and, you know, there are still birds around. There's the, the honkers that tend to be, you know, among the last waterfowl to leave. Of course, there's a few golden eye on the rivers and so on. Those rivers, uh, the ones that run through Saskatoon, the South Saskatchewan River, uh, is wide open. And so there are uh, honkers staging on there as well as sort of residual cackling geese, the little guys that uh, are often mixed in with them that loaf on the sandbars and, you know, fly off the river to feed in the fields nearby. Uh, I'd seen a few snow geese still sitting on a couple of reservoirs, you know, uh, Last Mountain Lake. Uh, I, I don't know about down there, but uh, there's a reservoir called Blackstrap that, uh, you know, south of Saskatoon that was holding some birds, but uh, I haven't been down there in a week or more. So, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, winter is on its way. And in fact, uh, it's starting to, it should cool down. And there's a, a blizzard, I guess, a small blizzard expected here through here Saturday and probably across uh, much of southern Saskatchewan with snow accumulating. Um, so, yeah, you know, the, the inevitable is happening, I guess. Ray, do you know how much snow they're forecasting? Uh, Stevens was Scott Stevens was was telling us that things were pretty dry coming into this fall, and any additional snow that we can get would certainly be welcome. What do we? What can you tell us about the forecast there? Yeah, well, it's just uh, Saturday. I mean, I don't know what what accumulations are going to be, but there's high winds, so things should pile up in the low areas. Uh, you know, thirty kilometer per hour wind gusting to fifty. Uh, it doesn't give a, a, a forecast for a total accumulation that I'm looking at this Environment Canada forecast. But um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I guess you never know until you know sort of thing. <laughs> That's right. Well, we'll take all the snow and all the precipitation we can get up there this time of year. So, Ray, let's move on to our discussion about uh, about this year's Arctic goose production. I referenced at the outset that you weren't able to get up on site because of the pandemic, weren't able to do the normal um, examination of the, the nesting colony itself, its size, whether it had expanded or contracted or the number of birds or in, in that nesting colony. And I guess to be clear, you the, the work that you've done uh, for, for close to or over 30 years now has been up at Carrick Lake, uh, the stronghold for or Ross's geese, um, but I'll, you can talk about some of the other species composition there as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so then normally we get some age ratio data out of the banding operations that follow those summer nesting uh, field seasons, uh, nesting seasons, but those two were were kind of canceled this year. So left us without any of that information until the birds started to arrive there on the on the staging ground. So uh, share with our listeners the, uh, I guess, what information, any other, any insights you want to with regard to any lack of activity that might have, uh, might have existed there for the field research up at Carrick Lake. And then what kind of data sets we're looking at now to try to draw some inference about what might have happened with regard to production. Well, our program at Carrick Lake, like the, the actual fieldwork in the Arctic started in 1991. And that's when I started you know, banding both Ross and Snow geese up there with colleagues. And uh, so, as you say, that, that 
but uh, banding information uh, is is an important source of uh, production. I mean, uh, because when we're banding in August, we're targeting birds that had try you know nested and either were successful or not, but they're still on the molt schedule. It renders them flightless in August. So the, so you, you get uh, adult birds and young of the year goslings that haven't quite fledged. They don't fly yet. And so the ratio of uh, goslings to adults is a pretty good metric of how well uh, the ones that tried to nest did. Um, uh, so that's that's from the banding operation, and that that's been ongoing uh, every year since uh, 1991 uh, until 2019. As you mentioned, there was no activity of, of that kind in 2020, and anywhere in the Arctic, the, my CWS colleagues. Uh, Jim Leafler and others uh, that uh, work with Jim uh, are responsible for the banding now that occurs throughout Arctic Canada for Arctic nesting geese. Um, but besides the banding, the other work component of work that you alluded to, uh, Mike, is uh, the, the, the research on the ground at the colony at Carrick Lake. And, and we get a lot of vital information there about different components that lead up to this final age ratio at banding. Uh, and we could talk about that if you like, but the bottom line, as you mentioned, in 2020, we don't have any banding information from the Arctic. We don't have any production information, and all you know through all the components of the nesting season that that lead up to that sort of pre-fledging fall flight age ratio uh, that people wonder about uh, every year. Uh, but the other thing that we had been doing for the last 30 so years, well, since 1993, in the case of Roskies, is we've been doing these productivity surveys in Prairie Canada, myself, my technician, Dana, and, and a few other grad students, Stuart Slattery, who you know, works for your shop, I guess, uh, former grad student, and, and many others. Uh, we'd go out and just count uh, in a systematic manner, uh, you know, uh, flocks of geese, not count the flocks, but count the, the ratio of young to adults there. And that's also really pretty strong information for, at least for Roskies, as I say, it goes, started in 1993 and, and we've continued it uh, to 2020 this year uh, in, the, in Saskatchewan in the fall. Now, those age ratios that I'm talking about on Prairie Canada in the fall, in September, October, um, as the birds stage here and, and move through, for Ross geese, we're uh, very highly correlated with what we see on the on the at Carrick Lake during the banding age ratios. They're always consistently lower, uh, but they they just bounce around for the most part in parallel over time. And there's been this long term reduction in in the age ratio uh, that we see both in Queen Maud Gulf during banding and also here in Saskatchewan for Ross geese. Uh, so, it, you know, they reinforce one another in terms of uh, the quality of the data reflecting what happened, at least in the central Arctic. I have a question for you with regard to those on the ground surveys in the prairies. Uh, those are conducted from roadside observations. I'm, I'm guessing you have probably have a path, a certain standard path that you that you travel when you as you see flocks you stop and use a spotting scope or binoculars to do some uh, systematic uh, count of the adults and juveniles in in the flock that you're looking at is that right we've been following a certain transect that that captures as the birds are staging here 
you know, where Roskies from Carrick Lake tend to stage, uh, you know, in southern Saskatchewan. And, you know, that's an area, you know, of Last Mountain Lake uh, kind of and heading west almost to the Alberta border. Uh, we can't cover the whole thing every year. You know, it depends on, uh, you know, what the birds are doing, where they're at, and also, uh, you know, uh, just weather conditions and so on. But try to follow a standard sort of route, uh, you know, starting from around, as I say, Last Mountain Lake and heading west and trying to capture uh, any birds that we see. Now, when we find a flock, you you, you do pull out, you need a good vantage point, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't always possible, but uh, uh, you park the vehicle and you use a spotting scope, or that's what I use, and uh, you, you have uh, counters in each hand, and you systematically scan through the flock this is why you want to have a bit of an oblique angle on the flock if you can so you could you just don't want to be able to see the leading edge of the flock because that's you know if you ever watch geese feeding and you know often the young birds the youngest birds are disproportionately placed at the edge of a you know that line that munches along through the field uh and so you know there's a lot of what you know what we call heterogeneity in in the composition like the the, the age ratio isn't you know nicely mixed up throughout the flock. So you have to be careful that you sample in transect fashion back and forth through the whole flock if you can systematically and 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 avoid, you know, biasing the counts uh, that way. So you want a true count of, yeah, you want a good sample of that flock. Yeah. So I guess to put a finer point on that, if uh, as an example, if you were to count only the birds at the edge and look at the count of the adults to juveniles or juveniles to adults from the edge of the flock and made the assumption that that was the way it was across the entire flock, that would not be appropriate. It gets to kind of uh, representation, appropriate representation across the entire flock. And in order to do that, you got to recognize that, as you said, those birds, adults and juveniles are distributed differently throughout that flock, right? Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I mean, if you don't take the time and, 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 and it's kind of a discipline to, you know, your eye tends to wander over to the rarer kind of bird that you're, you're enumerating. So if there's very few young, they tend to really stick out. So, you know, you have to, you know, you have to force yourself to, to stick to the regimen and, and, and zigzag through the flock back and forth from one end to the other. And uh, for example, I'll give you an example. I, you know, I've had reports of people that have gone through it for drives looking for geese and they drive by a flock that, that might be, you know, a tame flock that's maybe 50 or 100 yards off the road. And, and uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll look at it as they drive by and they notice a lot of young and say, whoa, there was a lot of young in that flock. And, uh, you know, I've often gone out and checked these some of these flocks. And sure enough, you know, there's bunches of young bunched up along what the leading edge of a feeding flock and and none on the other end or through through most of the flock itself so you know it's uh, it's you know people say statistics can be uh, uh, a, a very misleading uh, kind of endeavor but uh, there's some rigorous stuff behind the statistics and the whole point is to try to get a representative sample as you say Mike yeah. And so, Ray, you you said you've been doing these surveys since 2007. Is that right? Or does it go back farther than that The there on the prairies? Yeah, it goes back to 1993 for, Mor for Roskies. That's what, you know, it's because we we're focused on Roskies and, and the work at Carrick Lake. Uh, but then in 2007, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was <laughs> we're running into white-fronted geese from the central and Alaskan uh, north slope. 
uh, as well as snow geese. Uh, and, uh, uh, it, you know, I mean, it was an opportunity to get information on, you know, all three species that, that certainly use the central Arctic. Uh, and that was our main uh, interest as well. Uh, I mean, if these age ratios that you can do in Alberta would reflect birds from the western snow goose west snow geese from the western arctic of canada and 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 so on and if you go to manitoba and do these age ratios you'll for snow geese you'd be picking up birds that that nest in in uh, baffin island for example largely and you know you have to be careful too that there's some of the like we're the age ratios we get in saskatchewan is a mixture of birds it's largely birds from the central Arctic, but in the case of snow geese, there's a mixture of birds also, also from Southampton Island that mix, you know, they, they, they come from two different areas, but converge in Saskatchewan on their way south. So, you know, there's some caveats in, in what you're seeing as well. But I mean, we still see the strong relationship between what's happening here on the, on the, from the age ratio counts of Ross geese on the prairies. Uh, linking strongly, at least to 2019, over the last previous 30 years, uh, linking strongly to what was seen in the Arctic during banding. So it's quite a strong correlation. Well, what can you tell us about uh, the the data that you that you have this year um, that would tell us about Arctic Arctic goose production? This will be the first. Uh, the first defensible set of data that uh, I will have had an opportunity to talk with anyone about. We've heard a lot of reports from people that have been hunting, and but just as you say, you can't necessarily rely on those individual hunting reports to be representative of the entire population, but it's where your uh, your systematic survey here comes into play. So what have you seen from those surveys this year? I, I could address your, your point about the age ratio and what hunters are seeing. I mean, you know, uh, generally there's a relationship between what we're seeing and in, in, in terms of percent young and the percent young in the harvest. But it's always higher because the, the young geese are much more vulnerable in, than the adults. So the age ratios tend to be kind of correlated over time, but they're they're not the the true population age ratio that, you know, that hunters are sampling. The other thing too is when we do these age ratios, we're looking at thousands of birds and and, and hundreds of flocks. Uh, so you know you can imagine, you know, if I went out to hunt uh, and I set up a bunch of decoys, you're going to get a lot more young in your bag than are actually out there in proportion to the number of adult, of adults that are out there. So you know that's one thing. But generally. Uh, what hunters are seeing and whether what other biologists are seeing and what we've been measuring pretty well concordant that uh, 2020 was a very poor production year for Arctic nesting geese uh, to get to your question directly. The age ratio is less than 0.1 of a, of a gosling per adult. Uh, you know, that's, that's like a 10% age ratio, sorry, a 10% composition of young in the flock. So that's very low. Uh, now, you know, for what that means in terms of uh, the health of the population and whether it's increasing or not, uh, you know, um, it's not complicated, but it's a bit tedious. Uh, you have to know uh, what the adult survival rate is and, and it, you need to understand what juveniles, juvenile survival rate is in addition to this production age ratio. So the age ratio needs to be high enough that it can replace, you know, in a year or two after the, the young have died off and and um, and what's left when they become breeding adults, those 
young that are will be adults need to be sufficiently abundant to replace the adults that died currently, right? So, I mean, there has to be enough young produced to replace the, the adults, the breeding adults that die. And that just isn't the case right now, at least in 2020. And it generally hasn't been the case uh, for the last, say, 10 to 15 years. Uh, you know, adult survival rates are about 90%. In other words, you know, 90% of the adults you banned uh, will still be alive a year from now. 10% of those die, which is a very high survival rate. Um, but regardless, uh, the production has been so poor in 2020 and actually in 2018, it was near zero uh, based on our data that uh, you expect the population decline overall, especially when you have several years in a row of sequentially low age ratio information, certainly lower than 10% in most years in the last. Uh you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. A decade or so. Ray, I want to dig into these numbers. Well, maybe not dig into the numbers, but just try to explain them uh, a bit uh, in a bit more detail here. And let's take Ross's geese. The ratio of hatch year from 2020, the ratio of hatch year to after hatch year Ross geese was, and that means young to adult uh, after hatch year to after hatch year was 0.05 for Ross geese this year, based on your your surveys there on the prairies in, in Saskatchewan. And that would mean, tell me if I have this right, that for every 100 adults that you saw, you would have seen only five juveniles hatch your birds. Is that right? That's the age ratio expressed as a percent. If you sat down, got a pencil and uh, figured out what percent of the flock was composed of young birds, that'd be 11%. But the age ratio is sort of a, a more useful metric when you're comparing it against survival and so on. But yeah, they, they tell you the same kind of thing uh, over time. And for snow geese, that that conversion would be two hatchier birds for every 100, um, uh, roughly so, uh, two hatchier birds for every 100 adults. And then for white fronts, it was the same thing actually in Saskatchewan, uh, two yeah, two hatchier birds for every 100 for white fronts as well. Uh, and so what's our total sample sample size of the number of birds from which these estimates are being drawn? Do you have that number? Don't have it in front of me, but, it, you know, hundreds of flocks, I mean, uh, for all three species. And then, well, I mean, it might be worth just describing how, how the actual uh, counting is done. As I mentioned, you kind of go zigzag through the flocks. And you and you just tally blindly uh, in your, with your thumb. Uh, in the, <laughs> I use my uh, left hand for adults and and right hand for 
uh, young birds. So as you're doing a flock of white fronts, you're just hitting adult, 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 young. You know, you're just clicking away. It's those clickers like a lot of people, um, some folks down here, I've seen them, seen people use them in their fishing boats, you know, for if you have, if you're fishing for something that has a large uh, creel limit, um, you know, you want to keep track of them. It's just these little trackers, click clickers, right? That's right. A chrome colored thing with, uh, with uh, the numbers that tumble through as you press every time. So, yeah. So, so that's all you do. And, you know, you use a spotting scope for a 60X spotting scope. Uh, and then uh, the number of flocks you encounter varies. I mean, some, you know, some days you'll go out and you just, <laughs> you only see, you know, five or so different flocks. A lot of driving involved, a great way to see the country. Uh, but, you know, to answer your question, probably about 40 or 50 flocks of, of hundreds of thousands of birds in each. Uh, through time, that's over the, you know, through September and October. Uh, and sometimes you might be counting some of the same flocks a week later that you were earlier, or they're in the same location. You don't really know without uh, marked birds and transmitted birds and that sort of thing. But uh, the point is you're, you're getting a snapshot of the population. So, Ray, thanks for those those details there. Hopefully now people have a, a better picture of how the survey is done and the number of birds from which these estimates are drawn. And so the bottom line is it's a lot of birds. So, again, we talked about production this year is estimated to be very low based on these data. Put this into historical context. We've talked about how recently over the past you know, 15 years or so, the numbers have been low, but uh, and I want to get to that as well, get your thoughts on why we've seen some of those low numbers. But prior to that, what were some of the age ratios that we were looking at that we saw maybe when the population was really growing rapidly? Uh, just to give people an idea of how the numbers we see today are comparing to those historically. Yeah, okay. Well, no, that's a good point. I mean, uh, probably the best example is use Roskies because as, as we've discussed, that's the sort of longest term data that we had both uh, here on the prairies and also during banding in the Arctic going back to 1991. Um, yeah, you know, if you look at the sort of the long term sort of trends, uh, they've really declined uh, and something seemed to happen uh, about after 2005, maybe 2006, seven. Uh, before that time, these fall age ratios of ours for Roskies, uh, you know, would bounce around. There were a few low years of about 0.2, 20, 20 goslings for every 100 adults uh, in Saskatchewan as they moved through. But on average, you know, they would get as high as almost one uh, back in the uh, mid-90s. But overall, between 1991 and 2005, the age ratios were on average about 0.4. Uh, you know, uh, 0.4, um, so 40 goslings for every 100 adults, you know, and that's a pretty good production. And as you say, that coincided with when the population was growing and survival rates that were already pretty high by then, but they had increased further. So it was all conducive to, to you know, growing the population, high survival, few adults dying and uh, lots of young produced. And not only produced, but surviving long enough to get down here, uh, surviving the fall uh, migration up until, you know, down to the Prairie Canada. So something happened, as I say, after uh, 2005, uh, when the age ratio of Roskies declined from previous levels of about 0 0.40 to on average 0 0.15, 0 0.2. Uh, they're always uh, quite a bit lower. Uh, and uh, there was one year in 2017 when it, it approached uh, previous numbers, but 
uh, it's quite a, uh, well, you've seen the numbers in the, in the figure. It's hard, you know, on radio or podcast to convey what's going on uh, visually. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a step, a strong kind of reduction in, and chronically so, it, uh, except for the one year that I mentioned. So for the last 15 years, it's been uh, far below on average what it had been the previous 20 years, uh, if, you, if you'd follow me. Yeah, uh, I'm actually looking at the same graph, so I can follow you perfectly. But now our listeners are oh. <laughs> a little bit different. Yeah. But uh, you know, the other thing that I'm noticing here from this graph, Ray, is the strong correlation between Ross's geese, snow geese, and white fronts for those years from 2007 on when you have the data for those three species. Is that to be expected? Are these birds primarily coming from the same nesting colony and uh, therefore, is that what's happening? Yeah, that's where we cover, again, from that geographic area I mentioned that that, that our transects are on uh, to find these birds, uh, represents areas used by birds largely from the central Arctic. Now, these white fronts also have birds coming from Alaska, uh, but uh, it's, it's kind of like, it depends on, you know, the numbers that come from the central Arctic in Alaska. Uh, I think they largely represent birds from, you know, places like Queen Maud Gulf, where there's a strong population of white fronts or had been historically uh and places like that uh in the queen Maud, south of queen Maud gulf and on some of the islands in the um, uh, queen Maud gulf uh, area but largely on the mainland surrounding queen Maud gulf uh so yeah i think all of these guys that we, we the numbers you're looking at all three species uh originate from the same general area of the arctic and and, and behave and respond similarly to the prevailing climatic conditions in any year that that uh, they have on their shared uh, sort of nesting areas. You mentioned earlier that you've done some some pretty simple calculations based on uh, adult survival rates and uh, to figure out what type of recruitment rate, what type of uh, hatch year to after hatch year ratio you need in a given year to to sort of offset the mortality that occurs among the, the adults. And then, and therefore, maintain a stable population. And I think that number, when uh, when translated down to what you need to see on the staging areas there in Saskatchewan, is 0.16. Uh, that's the ratio. In other words, 16 hatch year birds for every 100 adults for Ross's geese. And here we talked earlier that this year and for the past few 15 or so years, those numbers have been much lower. Than that line this year, it was two, uh, two to four, depending on which speed. Well, for Roskies, it was uh, uh, five, five hatchier birds for every 100 uh, adults. And so we're well below that, that 0.16 level. The 0.16, Mike, is uh, based on the assumption that adult survival rate is 90% and, and the juvenile survival rate is, is 30%. So, uh, you know, as, as you think of a goose as it hatches through its lifetime or after it hatches through its lifetime, it has to, you know, make it as a gosling. Then it gets banded just before it gets flighted. And that's when we get the age ratio. Then it gets released and it has to survive a year. It could get shot in the prairies or in the United States or on, in the spring on the way back. Uh, and so that, that interval from that time that it's, you know, Banded as a gosling until one year later, that's the juvenile survival rate, which is always lower than the adult survival rate in, in, in waterfowl. Uh, well, 
virtually always lower. And then, you know, the thing has to survive as a non-breeding adult for a year. So, and then it, you know, becomes an adult and breeds and starts making its own, its own goslings. So there's all these sort of components in the life cycle and, and, and the lifetime that, that you have to consider. And, and the two important ones is that relate to that figure that you mentioned of 0.16 or 16 goslings per hundred adults depends on the adult survival rate of uh, 90%, which it is currently for Ross and snow geese are very close to 90% and about a 30% survival rate for juvenile. So the idea that when the number is below, when our ratio of goslings to adults is below 16, um, we should have a declining population. How does that compare to what you're actually seeing? How do these ratios, these fall uh, age ratios, compare to what you're seeing in terms of population growth, whether based on your, your estimates from the nesting colonies themselves or any type of Lincoln-Peterson population estimation? Well, uh, okay, I'll, you know, anecdotally, uh, just in la you know, as you know, going out hunting or just going out for drives or, or doing this field work, uh, <clears throat> it just seems that there's not quite the, the huge flocks of snow geese that and Roskies that I, I'm used to seeing, you know, from the 90s and, and 2000s. But that's not very strong information. I mean, it's just kind of like, uh, it's almost impossible to, to gauge because you could drive 100 miles and, and find the, you know, the big, uh, the backbone of the population, which might change from year to year. But you mentioned the Lincoln estimates and uh, those, these, yeah, I mean, since about uh, 2007, after the population peak, uh, for example, for snow geese, the Lincoln estimates showed strong growth from about two. I'm just going from memory here, Mike, but uh, two to three million estimated adults alive in August in the 1970s. And it, it peaked out at about just about 18 million, I think it was in in about 2007 and eight. And then it's been declining ever since. And I think it's down about the estimate now for 2018. Uh, we need to get the banding data and harvest data to be able to estimate for 2019. There's always a lag, but for 2018, it's it's gotten down to about uh, I think it's 12 million birds. So and consistently so. I mean, it's a it's a uh, from 2007 to 2018, the number of adults, as inferred from the Lincoln estimate, has been declining. As I say, from about 18 to about 12 million, and in fact, the rate of decline, if you look at those Lincoln estimates, is steeper than the former increase used to be. I mean, they're declining faster than they had increased in through the you know 90s and 2000s. So these these numbers are consistent with with population decline, and and they they kind of reinforce one another. Okay, well now I'm going to make you earn your paycheck. Tell us what you know, what we think we know about why those populations are declining. And don't tell me that they're not producing enough goslings. Maybe I should, maybe I should rephrase it and say, what's happening with our gosling production? What do we know about that? We can break down the life cycle like we did, uh, but you can also break down the breeding season. And so, you know, the birds arrive to, to Carrick Lake, for example, a, a very important nesting colony that used to have uh, 1.2 million nesting birds mixed with Ross and snow geese at the peak, coinciding also with the peak of the Lincoln estimate as, you know, uh, for snow and Ross geese uh, continentally. So uh, there's a lot of parallelisms there as well that tend to reinforce uh, our notions uh, uh, about what was going on. The strong increase 
not only at Carrick, but continentally, and then the subsequent decline after peaking out in about 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, in that area. Um, so when the birds arrive, they, uh, they uh, set up territories, they nest, and then, you know, we, we go out and measure how many birds are there, but we also measure the clutch size and the nest success, right? And so these probabilities of when uh, the likelihood of, of uh, all these events happening and successfully producing goslings uh, all have a bearing on, on the production, you know, the final production of young. So you can look at how many, you can look at the age ratio at hatch, and it's kind of funny, not funny, but I mean, it's it's kind of relevant because people say, well, how uh, often ask, well, how is a hatch? The hatch could have been great. Doesn't mean you're going to have lots of <laughs> goslings coming or juvenile geese coming down in the fall. Uh, the age rows at hatch have slowly been declining over time, but not nearly as steeply as the age ratios at banding. So the difference between the two is 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 driven by how how well goslings survive from hatch until banding, and that seems to be really tanking uh, more than anything else. The gosling survival rate from the time they hatch out of the eggs six weeks later until they're they're captured and banded uh, just before they gain flight uh has has declined uh, massively at least at Carrick Lake where where we've been studying this so I think that's a lot of the key why that's happening uh there's a lot of uh several reasons one is linked to uh density dependence like there's so many birds that uh, they've, you, we've all heard about how they can have an impact on on Arctic tundra and reduce vegetation and alter the vegetation communities. Some of that is related to how many birds have done that as the populations have grown, like surrounding the colony, and also over the years, the massive numbers of goslings and adults that feed on the uh, tundra surround, you know, as they disperse away from the colony. Um, and one of those, one of the outcomes of that is, is as the birds are coming to, to nest, uh, the adults, the adult females, we, we collect a sample every year. And, and since 1991 and until 2019, <laughs> no data this year, as we've, we've, as we've said, but, uh, that's shown in both Ross and snow geese, a strong decline in how fat they are uh, when they arrive. These are still going to be nesting birds. They all have ovaries and, you know, swelling up and ready to lay eggs and, and so on. But they're arriving with far less protein, muscle and fat uh, in the spring. And that seems to be related, correlated somewhat with this gosling survival. Um, and also, uh, the other thing that we found uh, is this idea if, you know, usually geese are considered to do well if the nesting season is early. But if it's too early, like if the snow melts way out early, uh, out way early, um, then the vegetation starts to grow much earlier than the geese are 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 able to nest uh, in sync with that growth. And by the time the goslings are big enough and, and eating, uh, you know, needing to have maximum protein in the in the tundra vegetation, the grasses and forbs and so on that they consume. Uh, there, there's this mismatch. So the peak plant quality uh, hits a peak before the 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 peak demand by goslings, and so we see that as well. The growth rates have declined as well, and it's it's especially obvious in years when it's it's too early. So there's a sweet spot. You want 
you want <laughs> you want the melt to occur at a time when that's optimal. So it's not too early and not too late. If it's too early, the gosling survival doesn't is is reduced. If it's too late, the birds don't nest as well uh, and don't have as high as clutch size and also don't have as as uh, successful a hatching rate. Uh, and on top of that, you got this density dependent thing going on where there's you know, a decline in, in the condition of uh, breeding females uh, over time, over the last 30 years. So there's a lot going on. So it's not a simple answer to a uh, straightforward question. Ray, what do you think might be going on with those, with the reduced body condition through time? Yeah, that was one of the, one of the things that we always talked about as one of the explanations potentially for why this, the white geese populations grew so rapidly as they were able to make use of agricultural grains all throughout the central and Mississippi flyways. And we of course still see that and that's where they, that's where they, uh, where they are during this time of the year. But what's going on to cause them to find to to be in a position where they're having reduced body condition as they when they re- arrive back on the nesting grounds? The huge increase in survival over time of of, of snow geese. Uh, let, let's focus on snow geese for this because that's where many of the papers have been published regarding you know the role of agriculture and their expansion into agricultural areas out of the coastal marshes in the you know sixties and so on and even before. Uh, from the coastal, you know, marshes of Louisiana and Texas onto the rice prairie. And then since then, up into the corn areas of, you know, Kansas and even Iowa through the winter. Uh, so that's, that's kind of uh, the conventional wisdom is that's kind of increased the, uh, the, the survival rate of adults. And the population grew as a result of that. Um, but more recently, uh, and that, that still is, Maintaining adult survival rates quite high. That nutritional uh, benefit that they get from from exploiting, uh, you know, all this available agriculture, corn and 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 uh, and, uh, and you know, in the Mississippi Valley as well. In the MAV, the some uh, Arkansas has become an important source of food as well for for you know, centered around the rice agriculture there as well. So that helped boost adult survival over the decades. Uh, but as populations grew and these, you know, f- so for example, snow geese arriving at Carrick Lake, they come from sort of a wide band of, of, of trajectories across the, you know, Manitoba and Saskatchewan, mostly Saskatchewan. But as they get closer and closer to the colony, they've left the prairies. They're about, a, you know, two or three hundred kilometers in the taiga south of uh two or 300 kilometers south of Carrick Lake. And they, they feed there some more. They top up their protein reserves and, and, and try to maintain what fat they bring up with them. And it looks like with the number of birds as they concentrate and the densities get higher and higher uh, within a season as they converge on a colony, uh, their ability to maintain those previous levels of high fat and protein is diminished. So, they're feeding well and boosting survival, but this density dependence is affecting their fuel tanks, so to speak, as they're getting close to the, the nesting areas. And and they we we've seen that the 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 clutch size of birds has declined over time, uh, as has the age ratio at hatch, uh, and then also you know finally the age ratio at banding, the things that lead to the 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 sort of the fall flight and determine the number of young that are going to be down here. Uh, you know, across the prairies and down into the United States through the flyaways. So um, some different mechanisms uh, historically at play at how the, the changing nutrition of these birds 
in part due to self-regulation from this density dependence, is affecting their ability to produce uh, goslings. And so the principle there, the simple principle behind density dependence is as the overall population grows, resources become a bit more constrained. And then the per capita um, demographic rate, whether it be survival or you know, even some way of measuring food acquisition, that declines. And then you start to see a um, yeah, decline in the per capita uh, rate of production or survival of those of those birds, but so Ray, kind of building on that that simple idea explanation of how density dependence operates, um, we've talked already about the population declining, declining to levels below where it was maybe ten or fifteen years ago. So that naturally leads us to to expect at some point those density dependent constraints are going to release a bit and we're going to start to see birds, um, the, the per capita, you know, demographic rates go back up. That's what we would expect. Right. But that kind of emphasizes there's something else going on here. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, before we get into that, let me refer you back to your podcast, which I listened to with great interest uh, about duck use days. I mean, that's that's you know, it's all about energy availability. And so, uh, you know, I, I would refer your listeners back to that. And you did a great job uh, covering that whole topic. Um, you know, how many geese, how many ducks can you support on, you know, so many acres of uh, wintering habitat? Uh, same principle applies to when 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 the birds are heading north, right? So that that was great. To get to your question, though, uh, uh, there's two other wrinkles that are uh, that are relevant here in terms of goose biology. Uh, yeah, you would predict that eventually the population should rebound, but what we, we've we've done some recent analyses and are about to submit a paper about this. Uh, and, and we've published otherwise as well in another paper about uh, the fact that birds are leaving Carrick Lake. The adults are, are, are not returning like they used to. When you say leaving Carrick Lake, you mean they're not coming back to breed the next year. Is that right? That's right. They're either not coming back to breed or they're and they're remaining as non-breeders or they're moving to a different part of the Arctic and breeding elsewhere. For example, Baffin Island. So there is a local response to this density dependence, and that's when things are not great, you get the heck out of Dodge. I mean, if you're not, you know, if you're if you're trying to raise kids and it's not working uh, because there's not enough resources around, you know, uh, you can keep trying to do the same thing and be unsuccessful. Uh, but there are some birds with a predisposition to move when this happens. And they do move. They 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 disperse. They emigrate permanently, uh, you know, from a, a, a previous uh, uh, breeding area to a new one, and give it a go elsewhere. So that that seems to be going on. So the this decline at Carrick Lake that we see is fueled not only by the lack of production. It's also fueled by an attrition in the number of uh, adults that are coming back to nest. It seems. So more more complications to the story, but uh, that seems to be what's what's uh, emerging as well. The probability of birds leaving is is linked uh, fairly convincingly to uh, the probability that they have a hatch a nest successfully. Uh, now I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking in years when the colony has uh, poor nest success. In the year following that, we have very few. Well, not very few. We have fewer birds returning 
so they've left. They're, and they're not dying. The survival rate hasn't changed. It's that they've moved somewhere else. And more recent work that we've done uh, by using banding from multiple colonies with you know, colleagues at Lapruz Bay, like Rocky Rockwell and Jim Leafler's program for banding at Baffin and, and Southampton Island. We're looking at what's called the metapopulation, which is just a fancy name for a, a population of populations where we can look at, at the movement of birds between these sort of five nodes, you know, three in the Arctic and two in the subarctic. Uh, and we can understand in greater detail uh, the movement patterns. And it, it seems, you know, this, none of this stuff's published yet, but we're, you know, we're working on getting it submitted, but um, it seems like there's a general movement from most areas to Baffin Island. Uh, and, and that's this sort of eastward movement in breeding range uh, within the, within the mid continent birds of the central and Eastern Canadian Arctic towards Baffin is consistent with the, uh, you know, anecdotal reports and, and, and information from banding returns during the winter of an Easter, eastward movement of, uh, by snow geese, mid-continent snow geese as well. We all know about the story of uh, birds, you know, Arkansas wintering way more birds than they ever used to, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And we're also familiar with the concurrent decline in Texas, for example, of snow geese. So, uh, you know, and there's reports of birds getting shot in Indiana, uh, and you know Illinois more frequently, where where that was pretty quite a rarity. You know, again, twenty thirty years ago. So it it all kind of you know the general picture uh, makes sense that there's this eastward movement, and with regard to the Carrick situation, that that explains uh, part of the decline in in population size, poor production year after year due to density dependence, but also the exodus of adult birds. We're going to have to wrap this up here pretty soon, but I'm fascinated by all the different pieces of this. Uh, so, but briefly on the question about, I have a question about Baffin Island. Do we, do we have any type of long-term study going on up there to, at, a, at that nesting colony? And if so, or, if, or I guess really what I'm getting, my question is, do we, what do we know about recruitment rate population growth at Baffin Island? Well, we, we know a little bit. I mean, we, we don't have on the ground nesting studies, but we do know that um, uh, <clears throat> we have the banding age ratios and those can be exploited to get an idea sort of of average production and, and, and certainly relative to other to other uh, colonies. So, you know, um, Baffin, uh, based on the age ratios averaged over this 10 year sort of banding study that we did, and the survival estimates that you get from for adults and juveniles, so those three pieces of information can can give you an idea whether or not the population should be uh, increasing, stable, or declining. We have those three sort of rough bits of information. Uh, and Baffin, uh, at least from the period two thousand five to two thousand sixteen, I think it is the period of the that covered by the study that I'm referring to about the this metapopulation study, uh, the Baffin birds seem to be maintaining their own high juveniles, well, high survival of adults, the highest of any of the five subpopulations that we looked at, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, reasonably good age ratios, sufficient, sufficiently high that, that the population is at least self-sustaining and maybe even growing a little bit. All the other populations, um, uh, when, 
It's called the self-replacement rate. Uh, if you if you calculate what that is for the Queen Maud Gulf, Southampton, uh, La Perouse Bay, and then the populations around James Bay in the subarctic uh, are not predicted to be capable of replacing themselves due to this exodus and also uh, largely due to the exodus, but also poor production of young. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a tangled web, <laughs> uh, as you might figure, and uh, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. And uh, it is a bit challenging when people say, well, what's going on with snow geese? Well, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, Absolutely. You know, th- it seems like just 10 or 15 years ago when, I guess it'd be about 15 years ago, the right on the heels of the uh, the prolonged population growth, exponential population growth for this, these these birds, uh, Ross geese and snow geese, it was one of those species where we were able to look back and say, hey, our scientific investments have helped us figure out what's going on with this bird, helped us figure out what was driving the uh, the growth in that population the, and and how those birds were moving around uh, in, in, on their Arctic breeding grounds and subarctic staging and breeding grounds. And we had pieced together most of what was happening. And, you know, for, at least from my perspective, we felt pretty good about having a handle on what's happening with those. Now, at the micro level, you would probably say we were still um, – uh, grossly deficient in some of our understand, understanding, but big picture, we felt like we had had it figured out what was driving that growth. And then lo and behold, the populations start declining, which leads to a whole other range of questions, many of which we've here just, just talked about. So is, is that a reasonable characterization of how our study and understanding and maybe even now confusion <laughs> of what's happening with this population has evolved? It's confusing that the population is declining. I mean, uh, all the evidence is consistent with that, and, and certainly the Lincoln estimates suggest that. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, having on-the-ground studies in the Arctic is key to understanding the mechanics of, you know, the answers to the question why. Like, what's, what's driving these declines in age ratios? I mean... Uh, you know, uh, and and getting age ratios at different times of the annual cycle, as we talked about during the hatch age ratio, then there's the banding age ratio, uh, you know, still in the Arctic as goslings, and then the, the age ratio we see here. And here's another wrinkle, you know, if you add a, want to add another layer of complexity, uh, one of the things, the other things uh, that we were musing about in 2000, you know, after, ha- which happened after 2005, 6, 7, was you know <laughs> over time the 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 age ratio at banding and what we see on the prairies for Roskies was pretty parallel. The stuff on the prairies was always lower than than what we were seeing at banding, and that makes sense because adults don't really die in that interval from the Arctic until they get to the prairies, but goslings can, in fact, do. Uh, and then we, that's after that year we see a greater discrepancy between the age ratios after 2005, uh, if, if you can visualize and follow what I'm saying. And, and so that's related to the survival rate of, of, of goslings that, you know, during migration, just from the Arctic to the prairies. So there's another wrinkle uh, and, and the sort of additive effect of, of what's going on regarding juvenile survival and further reducing the age ratios that we see. So I kind of kind of got in the weeds there a little bit, Mike. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, uh, you know, understanding 
requires uh, effort and investment, and uh, it's certainly uh, been helpful uh, in in trying to figure out what, what's going on with these birds. The interesting question is, is you know, this conservation order, and I don't know what the answer is. I I think uh, as the population declines, uh, survival rate is still high. Uh, the conservation order uh, questions will start coming up about the, its relevance and so on. Uh, but for now, I mean, I think the management plan for for mid-continent snow geese is a population of a Lincoln estimate population of about 5 million birds. And so it's still a, about twice as high as that. So Yeah. And Ray, the other, the other part of that conservation order discussion is that if you look to the West a bit, uh, the population out in uh, Wrangell Island is, is one that's, I, I think, doing quite well and expanding. It might even be at that exponential growth phase. I'm not, not sure exactly about that, but I know we've talked about uh, that issue with Mark Petrie and the growing number of white geese in the Central Valley of California and other portions of the Pacific Flyway and their existence as a growing source of competition for uh, winter, uh, fall and winter foods with uh, for ducks is is a, a new issue and another, uh, so to speak, wrinkle in the entire story around uh, Arctic nesting geese. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that's my understanding as well on Wrangler. The production is really good and survival is sufficiently high that, you know, you add those two things together uh, or multiply them together and then, uh, you know, you're going to get population growth. Uh, you know, I mentioned also that, that there, there is part of that increase too, though, is fueled by birds probably leaving the, you know, we talked about this recent study where uh, birds in, are heading kind of northeast. Well, there's probably leakage out of the mid-continent population westward as well, you know, fueling the growth on the north slope of Alaska that the surveys are, are showing there as well. Um, uh, and probably, you know, the entire, you know, uh, Canadian, like Banks Island, the western Canadian uh, population of uh, uh, of snow geese, which some of which winter in the mid-continent, but also places like New Mexico and, you know, the West Central Flyway, but also in the Central Valley. So, yeah, there's, uh, again, some tangled webs there as well in terms of connections between Central Arctic birds and, and, and where they end up during the winter. Ray, we're going to need to wrap this up. And it sounds like we still have a ton of stuff that we could talk about. And, you know, maybe... I don't know how we would pull this off or when we would be able to, but shoot, it would be really nice if we could get you, Jim Leeflor, and uh, Rocky Rockwell to, to sit down. We could have a have a conversation about uh, snow geese all across the, the Arctic. That would be pretty cool if we could pull that off sometime in the future, but we'll just have to see how that goes. We'll see. Yeah, Ray, I also wanted to thank you for being a listener of the podcast. That was a pretty neat little thing to learn. I was not aware that you uh, listened to all those or at least listened to some of the episodes. So I want to thank you for that. I also want to thank you for being a repeat guest here on the show. I, I know your episodes, the episodes we've had with you have been very popular. You always bring a lot of great information, firsthand information. You're you're one of the one of the people that is actually on the ground collecting the data, analyzing the data. And so you know it better than anyone else. And that's why it's always great to have you on here to talk about these things. And so then also, thank you for sharing the information, the most recent data out of these surveys on the the, the prairie staging areas for uh, for geese. It's not great news for, for waterfowl hunters that are looking for a lot of juveniles in the flocks this year. It doesn't sound like that's the case. But 
Uh, nevertheless, I have seen a lot of videos on social media of huge flocks of, uh, of snow geese. So I know the birds are out there. It may be a bit more challenging this year to, uh, to decoy them, but nevertheless, you got to give it a shot. Yeah, it should be nice to hear about reports of, uh, you know, people, you know, what kind of production they're seeing down in some of the wintering areas. Uh, and maybe you'll, you'll get some of those perspectives uh, in future podcasts. Yep, indeed. Well, Ray, thank you so much for joining us here, and we look forward to catching up with you again in the future. My pleasure, Mike. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Ray Alisaskis with Environment and Climate Change Canada. We always appreciate his time on the show and sharing with us firsthand knowledge about what's happening with the Arctic nesting geese. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work he does on this podcast. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.